At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying his word together. Today, we invite you to tune in for our current series, Revealed, stories with purpose as we study the parables of Jesus, reading stories with the power to reveal God's truth in our lives. Well, good morning. I'm glad that you're here. Good to get some cartoons in the service again this morning and to be able to engage our kids with the passage that we're going to be in uh, today. And I'm encouraged to be uh, with you this morning. So if you have your Bible, let me encourage you to open it up to Luke chapter 16. Uh, the story that you just saw was uh, taken from Luke 16 verses 19 through 31. We're going to conclude our series called Revealed and look at one more parable of Jesus this morning in, uh, in the gospel of Luke. So Luke 16 verses 19 through 31. Let me ask you to stand with me as I read God's word, and then I'll pray. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll jump in together, okay? Scripture says, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment. And he lifted his eyes up and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things. And Lazarus, in like manner, bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. Besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm that has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. So he said, then I beg you, Father, send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This is the word of God. Let's pray and give thanks together this morning. Spirit of God, we thank you that you are here with us this morning, that as we gather today, you are present within our midst. We thank you for the grace that we have sung about already today, that you are faithful and kind and good, and that we can come to you. Lord, this morning as we hear your word, as we receive it today, may we receive it with hearts of humility and openness and faith. And Lord, may we let your word, which your spirit will take, may we let your spirit change us and challenge us and make us new people today. May, Father, we not be ignorant or uh, dismissive of what you have declared and revealed for us, but may our faith be accompanied with obedience, and might you be glorified in our lives, and might the world be loved and won for you. Help us now, we pray and ask by your Spirit. Give us ears to hear. We are listening. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You could be seated. 
Well, I don't know about you, but I really like surprise endings, uh, particularly in films. I, I enjoy not knowing where the story is going to go and how it's going to conclude. And I, and I really love it when I think I've got it figured out, and I think I know this is going to be the resolution of the plot line or the way the story is going to all come uh, together, and, and the, at the last second, the director or the writer throws a great twist that I didn't see coming, and I'm just like, Whoa, where did that come from? That surprise just, just blows me away. I think uh, Christopher Nolan's films are um, some of the best that do this uh, today. His, his film Inception and Prestige and even Interstellar are some of the ones that I just, I can't figure, I have to watch them multiple times just to figure out, how did they get from A to Z there? Like I just, and the surprises blow me away. Often in those films, and in many others, it's a reversal of how you thought things were going to develop. You may have an idea in your mind of, like, this is where it's going to land. This is where it's going to conclude. And then something changes. There's a reversal. There's a turn that happens that, that you and I didn't anticipate, and we're stuck with surprise. We're amazed at what's declared there. That's one of the things I think and I love about Jesus' parables. They often do the same thing. He is, he's a master storyteller, far better than Christopher Nolan in his films, but a master storyteller who in his storytelling, in his parables, has the ability to bring a reversal or a twist that the audience wouldn't see coming. And it's not just a twist for a twist's sake. In his reversal, in Jesus' uh, stories here, he brings a reversal to get right at our hearts. He's coming for our hearts, and he wants to expose what we believe and what we think. He wants to bring those things to the surface so that we have to be honest and engage with what he's teaching, that we have to see the spiritual realities that he has for us in light of how we live our everyday lives. Now, in this parable, this is our, as I said, this is our last Sunday in this series in Luke's parables uh, revealed stories with a purpose. In this parable here, Jesus has a specific audience. Again, he's aiming at our hearts. He wants to speak directly to us about our lives and how we live and think and operate. And so Luke, as he has been to give away who it's for and what it's about, he does this in chapter 16, verse 14. Jesus here, Luke 16, 14 says that Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees who were lovers of money, and when they heard all these things, they ridiculed him. And they said to him, who are you to justify yourself? Before men, Jesus says this to him, God knows your hearts, for what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Jesus here is speaking to the Pharisees, and he's been working on their hearts about how they live, how they treat other people, the way they observe and take hold of God's word. Jesus is speaking to them, and he's speaking to them because, Luke says, they love money. They're caught up in their prestige. They're caught up in their, in their realities of who they are, in their wealth, and their elite standing. You see, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, the Pharisees in particular, this, this sect of Jewish leadership, they were the, the, the theologically conservative, biblically literate people of Jesus' day. They were, they were largely wealthy and elite in society. They were upstanding people, more, morally speaking, in Jewish culture, but with a lot of arrogance, with a lot of looking down on others. We addressed that last Sunday where we saw that they looked down with others with contempt. They loved their money. They loved their pride of place. They loved their privilege and their upstanding realities in society. And Jesus speaks these parables to address their hearts, to confront them, 
Could Jesus be speaking to us today as well, though? I wonder if in this parable, it's not just about Jesus and the Pharisees. I, I firmly believe that Jesus is speaking about our current cultural context today and our realities and our culture in this parable as much as he was speaking about his own day. Where there is a, a love of money, where there is a religious elitism, Jesus has a word for us. He, he wants to speak to our hearts and to our lives today. And what I want to do as I unpack this parable is I want to draw a few lines of truth that are here for us in this. I want, to, I want to lay out some propositions so that we see here's what Jesus is teaching in this parable, and then I want to show us where this parable takes us in response. How do we respond to what Jesus is talking about here and what he's teaching in this? So let's, let's dive in together. The first line of truth that I want to draw for us is that our final destiny is the result of our belief. Where we spend eternity is the result of our faith. Where you spend eternity after death fundamentally comes down to your faith and who and what you have believed in. Jesus demonstrates that in the way that he tells the parable here. So in this parable, he has two people. Again, it's a contrast here. Two people are living in this parable that Jesus tells. There was a rich man, verse 19, who was clothed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores. So you see the contrast there right away. These two individuals, the rich man, Jesus paints the picture of his life. He's covered in fine linens, purple. I mean, this is wealthy, expensive clothing. This is the, this is the highest name brands. This is the designer fashions. And this is what he's wearing. He's got extreme wealth. And, and even more so, he feasts sumptuously every day. The idea there is that he is having a great table spread day after day after day after day. He lacks nothing. Anything he wants is at his table. He gorges himself on the best of foods. And it's a daily thing. It's not just like, hey, once a year I'm going to get a steak. But it's day after day after day, meal after meal. Jesus just paints this picture of extravagant, over-the-top, wealthy living. So that's the rich man. And then Jesus turns and, and positions another character right outside this man's house, at his gate. So, so right out the front door, as you, as you walked out the man's uh, huge estate, the rich man's huge estate, and as you got past the driveway and then out to the gate, there was this poor man. There was laid a poor man named Lazarus, and he was covered with sores. Now, Lazarus' name, this is the only character in any of Jesus' parables that is given a specific name, Lazarus. In the Hebrew, the name is Eleazar, which means God helps. Jesus is signaling something for us in his name specifically there. His condition is horrible. I mean, his condition is, is destitute. He is there at the gate of this rich man, and he does, he's covered with boils and ulcers and sores. He's very, very sick very poor, and he desired, his, his heart, he, he, he needed to be fed even with the scraps that would fall off the table. So all this sumptuous feasting, there had to be leftovers. There had to be table scraps. He, he, he longed just to have some of that food, but it seemed like nothing was being given to him. There was no help that was coming his way. Whatever fell from the rich man's table, he desired to be fed with, and it's so bad for this man that even the dogs which were not the domesticated household pets of Jesus' day. These were the, the vile, dirty, filthy, unclean animals 
that roamed the streets. The wild dogs came and licked his sores, which first of all made him ceremonially unclean. He couldn't even enter the temple, couldn't worship. Furthermore, some have indicated that those licks would have brought further infection and disease and bacteria upon the man's wounds. His condition is desperate. So there you see the, the extremes. You have an extremely rich man and an extremely poor man here in this parable. It gets us to think here for just a minute. How would I live? How, how, how do I live towards those who are poor in my life? How do I treat the poor man? Jesus takes these two characters to their end. He takes them to their death. They both die there in verse 22. The poor man died, and, and here's where the beginning of the great reversal is seen. The poor man dies, and he's carried by the angels to Abraham's side. He, he dies, and it's as if he's lifted up and elevated, this, this phrase, carried by the angels. It's an honorific kind of idea. It reminds us of Elisha and Enoch who were taken up to God himself. The angels come and they carry him to Abraham's side. Abraham's side is the, the picture or the metaphor of the, Jewish, the Jews' view of, of heaven in that day. It's a place of paradise. It's part of the faithful. It's the place of the faithful. It's a good place to be. We would call it heaven. There, the, the poor man is taken up raised up by the angels to be there at Abraham's side. But also then the rich man dies as well. We don't have any sense of what the poor man's burial or funeral was like. He was probably, in Jesus' mind, just tossed into a common pauper's grave and forgotten, long lost. But the rich man, he died and he was buried. The family tomb, the, the wealthy abode of, of those who had the wealth. He's, he's there and he's buried in his tomb. And yet his final destination isn't Abraham's side. It's not the place of paradise. It's Hades. We would call it hell. He there's in Hades being in torment. So the reversal happens. The poor man goes to heaven. The rich man to Hades, to torment, to judgment, to eternal fire. Jesus here now begins to stay focused on the rich man. There in his torment, there in his eternal ag agony and anguish, verse 24 says that he called out to Jesus, or he called out to Abraham, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus. Send him to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I'm in anguish in this flame. I mean, here's just the, the picture of how horrible hell will be. And the, and the eternal warning that this is for us to, to do all we can to avoid hell. But there he's crying out to Abraham, and he's saying, Abraham, notice here how he treats Lazarus. He has not changed in any way, but he continues to treat Lazarus as that poor man outside of his house that is beneath him, that should come and serve him. Abraham, send that poor man who, who I am superior to. Send him down here to dip his finger and to cool my tongue because I deserve to be served. I'm entitled to some help here. I, I should have some relief from my anguish. And Jesus, again, continues the turn here. He continues the reversal. This, this rich man sees Lazarus as nothing. And Abraham responds, he says, Child, remember that you in your lifetime, you received the good things, your good things. And Lazarus, in like manner, received the bad things. But now it's all changed. Now he is comforted here. And you are in anguish. 
Rich man, in your life, you had it all. You had the good things. Lazarus had the bad things, but now it's reversed. It's turned. There's a change here. Where Lazarus was hoping for the scraps of food to fall from the table of the rich man, the rich man in his pride believes that he's entitled to Lazarus' coming to relieve his pain, but he's not going to have it. The, thing, the tables are reversed. And furthermore, Abraham says, there is an unbridgeable gap between the two. There is a great gulf fixed, verse 26. Besides this, Abraham says, besides all this, between you and him, a great chasm has been fixed in order that you can't pass down to him and he can't come up to you. It's, it's, a, it's a permanent position. You're there. Now think about this for just a minute. In their life, there was just a gate that separated Lazarus from the rich man. And the rich man could at any point go outside the gate and serve Lazarus and show mercy to him and be compassionate to him. It could be opened and he could go in and out, but it never happened. And now in their afterlife, there's a great goal fixed. And now the rich man desires for Lazarus to serve him, but there's no possibility of that. In death, there is a great goal fixed, and the setting is forever. It's eternal. Now, here's the point that Jesus is making. He's laying out for us a, a very clear understanding of the next life. After death, your final destiny is a result of your belief. Your eternal state is a condition of your faith. And I would say this is entirely consistent with the teaching of the Bible. The scriptures tell us that we are saved by God's grace, which we receive through faith. Who and what you put your trust in, that's who you believe. That's the ultimate thing. It's the most important thing. But belief, faith here, let me be very clear, isn't just some intellectual affirmation of a truth. It's not just some truth in the mind. It's not just some, okay, well, I believe that George Washington was the first president of the United States and it doesn't have any effect in your life. True faith, true belief is worked out in our actions and behaviors. True faith shows itself in the way we live. The rich man believed in his comfort. He believed in his luxury and in his position and in his entitlement, even his privilege, and he did nothing to show mercy to the poor man. He didn't help him at all. And that's what he received, the result of his belief. He believed that he was self-sufficient, that he was king of the hill, that he was able and competent and, and wealthy and had everything he needed. He needed no one and nothing and that he was superior. That's his faith. And it worked itself out in its actions. He did nothing to serve the poor man. He received the, he received the result of his belief. Lazarus, the poor man likewise, had nothing. And remember, his name means God helps. I believe Jesus gives us that detail to help us see that he believed that help would come from God. That's his only source. That's his only help. His name was a display of that, and he too received the result of his faith. He trusted God, depended on him. And so there is Lazarus, paradise forever, and the rich man in agony and torment in hell forever all because of their faith. Their faith shows itself in what they did. And that points us to the reality that we must consider our faith as well. What is our faith showing itself doing in our lives? Our deeds are the outflow of our faith. What we do, how we treat others, how we live in this world is the 
fruit. It is the display of what we believe in our hearts and in our minds. That's why James is so clear in James chapter 2, verses 14 through 17, when he says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but doesn't have works? Could that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, it's that kind of spiritualizing, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? You can put a big zero on the scoreboard there. James says, so also, faith by itself, or I would say faith in just the mind, if it does not have works, is dead. Our true faith shows itself in our actions. This parable gets us to consider our own actions and our deeds, particularly towards the poor and the marginalized, the sick and those in need. We can't just look down on them and and their problem and say, you know, I'm sorry, be warm and filled, and do nothing to address their problem. Do we really believe what the Scriptures teach if that's how we live? If we do nothing to alleviate the plight of the poor, the marginalized, and those in need, do we really believe the gospel? Or as Martin Luther King Jr. so eloquently put it, it's a cruel jest to say to a bootless man that he ought to lift himself up by his bootstraps. True faith, true Christianity is a faith that actually serves. It actually meets the needs of the poor. It it goes to those right outside our gates, outside the gates of our homes, outside the gates of our church, Inside the gates of our community, true faith, if it is real, true Christianity, if it's real, puts our faith to action. So this might be an indictment on us today. Is our faith real? Do our deeds actually match our creeds? Because you can't have one without the other. And this is the question that Jesus is asking us in the parable. What do we believe? How is it showing up in our actions? So this is the first line of truth that Jesus draws out here. We need to consider our final destiny is the result of our belief. It shows itself in our actions. So what do we do with that? Well, here's the second line of truth that Jesus takes us to here. Second line of truth is this, that revelation has been given to direct us. So if our faith is, if our final destiny is the result of our belief, then how do we know what to do? How are we informed on that? Jesus is very clear. Revelation or instruction, training, a word from God has been given to direct us. We're not alone to figure this out. Here's what God says. Here's what Jesus says. God has spoken so that we know what to do. So the the gulf is fixed. One cannot pass from the other side to the other. And so the rich man responds. Jesus' story goes on. He, He cries out and he says, then I beg you, Father, verse 27, to send him. Send. He doesn't even name him. He doesn't even know his name. I mean, his, his, his arrogance and his looking down on Lazarus is so great. Not even name him, but again, here, send him. He's my servant. I can command him to do whatever I want. Send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers so that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. So again, he's looking down on Lazarus and he's saying, you know what? They need to see a miracle. I mean, they need a particular sign to figure this out. They need something big and grandiose to go, oh, perhaps the way I'm living doesn't match up with where I'm going to end up, so maybe I just need a a miraculous warning sign from the grave to tell me what to do, how to live. He's he's concerned for his brothers and their wealth and the the heart of 
their lives. But again, Abraham answers. Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And Moses, or Abraham says, no, no, your brothers who are alive right now in this moment, they have revelation. They have a resource. They have what they need. It's Moses and the prophets. And when Jesus uses that phrase, that term, Moses and the prophets, he's speaking of the scriptures. It was the shorthanded way in Jewish culture to refer to the old te- what we would call the Old Testament scriptures, Genesis through Malachi. Abraham is saying they have these word, the word of God. They, they know the, the commandments of God. It's clear. It's not hidden from them. They know the grace of God in the Old Testament, the way the scriptures point forward towards Messiah and the king and the rescuer who will come. They have the promises of God in the covenants. They have Moses and the prophets. God has spoken. So they should listen to that. It's enough. The scriptures are enough for us to know the way of life, to know how we should live, to know what actions our faith should undertake. Jesus here is making a profound statement about the authority of the Bible. It's authoritative. It's clear. They have enough scriptures. We have the scriptures to help warn, edify, direct, and lead us. So they should go to the Word. I'm sure you've heard the story before of a man in a flood. And the floodwaters are rising up around his house. And so he climbs up on the roof of his house because the waters are just rising. And he, and he begins to, on his roof, pray and cry out to God and say, God, you can save me. I trust you. Please save me. And a few moments later, a motorboat, come, a rowboat comes by. And, and they cry out to the man on the top of his house as the floodwaters are rising. Well, hop in the boat. And, and the man says, no, 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 no. I'm okay. God will save me. I've prayed to him. And the waters rise a little bit more. The flood is raging. The storm around him is going on. And he, he begins to cry out all the more earnestly, God, I believe you. You can save me. Save me. Come and help me. And a few moments later, a motorboat comes by. And there again, the people in the motorboat cry out and say, jump on the boat. We're here for you. We're ready to rescue you. And the man, he waves up his hands. He says, no, 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 no. No, I believe God is going to save me. I've been praying to him. He's going to rescue me. And the storm gets even worse. And the water is right up to the edge. And he just has a, a bit of the house to stand on. And he cries out and he says, God, hear my voice. I believe you. I trust you. Send a rescuer. Send help. And the of a helicopter begins to rail over the house. And a spotlight drops down and a rope falls and a basket's there. And they cry out and say, jump in. We're here to save you. We're here to rescue you. And the third time, the man goes, no, 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 no. I believe God will save me. I, I trust him. I've been praying to him. And the waters rise, and the man drowns, and he dies. And he stands before God. He's got a confused look on his face, and he says, well, I didn't get that, God. I prayed, and I prayed, and I prayed, and I believed. And God looks at him and says, well, I sent a rowboat, I sent a motorboat, and I sent a helicopter. What are you missing? The point is this. God's given us his word. He has revealed for us how we should live. He shows us how our faith should become action. It's not a mystery. It's not a secret. You and I have all we need now to avoid hell. 
The word of God is clear. It's helpful for us. We have even more than the Jews of Jesus' day in having the completeness of the Scripture in the New Testament. We look back and we see Christ crucified and raised. We see the realities of the gospel at work in all of life for us. So if we find ourselves on the day of judgment facing eternal torment, just know this, it will not be because we didn't have enough revelation or that we lacked sufficient witness for us to build our faith and to show us how to live. The problem for us today is, I think as Mark Twain put it, it ain't the parts of the Bible that I, can, I can't understand that bothers me. It's the parts of the Bible that I do understand. How dangerous is it for us to give lip service to the Word of God, to say, and maybe even mind service, I believe it, but not to give hand and heart service to the Word of God. How dangerous is it for us to become, my favorite term, theological bobbleheads, to know all the parts and minutia of theology in the scriptures, but never engage our hands and our heart and our will in living them out. We're, we're Woodside Bible Church. We say the Bible is the best, and we believe it. But do we ignore the obedience that faith calls us to? Could the problem be that we want to affirm the parts of the Bible that we like and affirm our already held positions, but we won't humble ourselves and obey and let the scriptures correct us. And that's what Paul said to Timothy in our favorite passage on the Bible, 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is God-breathed. It's breathed out by God, and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction. Do you only love the Bible when it affirms what you already believe? Are you willing to be corrected? So here's these two lines of truth, okay? Jesus has laid them out in this parable. Our final destiny is a result of our belief. Our final destiny is a result of our belief, and we have sufficient revelation. We have revelation enough to direct us in our belief. But it leads to the big question that this parable asks. What will you do with what God has revealed? Because Ascent, mental agreement in the mind, but not in action and the wills, is not faith at all. It's dead faith. So what will you do with what God has revealed? And here's the conclusion of Jesus' story. Here's where the great reversal comes to bear for us today. The rich man has cried out and said, send, send that man, send Lazarus back to warn my brothers. And Abraham says, no, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And so then the rich man speaks again, and he says, no. <laughs> I mean, he's just, he's just so hard-hearted, so stuck in his, in his position. He says, no, Father Abraham. The Bible isn't enough for them. They're not going to get it. No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. I mean, here it is. They need a sign. They need a miracle. If somebody goes to them, he, he believes that a, a resurrection and warning from that resurrected person will blow their minds, and they'll get it and see and change. They need a miracle before their eyes. And Abraham says, no. If they haven't heard, if they've, they have the scriptures, and if they haven't heard and believed the Bible, neither will somebody showing up from the dead convince them. The word is where it starts. The miracles, they, they affirm the word. But faith isn't built on miracles, it's built on the word of God. 
John Calvin put it this way. He said, some would desire that angels should descend from heaven, others that the dead should come out of their graves, others that new miracles should be performed every day to sanction what they hear, and others that voices should be heard from the sky. But if God were pleased to comply with all their foolish wishes, it would be of no advantage for them. For God has included in his word all that is necessary to be known, and the authority of this word has been attested and proved by authentic seals. You don't need a miracle to get somebody to believe. You've got the word of God. You don't need a miracle to see and to foster and fuel faith in your heart. You have the word of God. God's done everything to supply solid ground for your faith. But here's the surprise ending. Not only do we have the scriptures, we actually have one who did rise from the dead. Surprise! I mean, there's the turn for us. No, Father, Abraham says, no, that won't happen. If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, he says, neither will they be convinced if someone shall be, should rise from the dead. I mean, that's just what he lands on. He's like, if they don't hear the scriptures, they're not going to be convinced if somebody rises from the dead. Oh, but wait for us today. We have the scriptures and the scriptures attest to, they declare to us powerfully that Jesus is alive from the grave. We have the double joy, the double affirmation that our faith is not in vain. God's done everything to supply solid ground. He's given you his word. He's raised Christ from the dead. So here's the question. What are you doing with what God has revealed? What are you doing with it? Practically, how does it live itself out in your life? We'll say, well, what has God revealed? He's revealed that we must repent of our sins and come with faith to Christ alone to save us. The scriptures are clear. You're not saved by being a moral person. Only the sinless Savior, Jesus, can do anything to save you. And he has by his life and his death and his resurrection. You are saved by his grace and his work alone. None of your works. Christ alone can save us. And we have him who was raised from the dead to tell us. He speaks and he says, repent and believe the gospel. So we must turn from our own works and our own efforts to save ourselves. The scriptures declare that. And we must be a people of good works and just deeds because faith without works is dead. There's no contradiction in the Bible. Faith without works is dead. Remember the gospel order that we are saved by grace. Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 2, 8 through 10. You are saved by grace through faith and that not of yourself that is the gift of God so that no person can boast. And verse 10, because we are God's workmanship created new in Christ Jesus for good works. The gospel order. We're saved by grace, not of works, in order that we do good works that it flows out of our lives. What are those good works? Well, they're the good works of caring for the poor, for the sick and the destitute, for loving the fatherless, the widow, the alienated, the weak. Therefore, loving others. Christianity, if it's real, should be the most progressive and active faith for the good and benefit of every human being. We must pay attention to those who are outside our gate and not ignore or overlook them, but actively by our deeds, serve and care for them. This happens on a personal level. It happens on a larger civic level as well, both in our neighborhoods and in our communities and in every level that we can, we ought to impact and have opportunity to impact for the greater good. 
Faith without works is dead. It goes back to the greatest commandment. You remember what Jesus said? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. And we could spend a whole other time talking about who's my neighbor, but it's anybody you have an opportunity to serve and to love and to care for. We cannot ignore the scriptures. We've been given sufficient revelation, so what do our deeds do? What do we do? Here's the big idea of this whole parable. Real faith obeys God's word. Real faith obeys God's word. And so I would ask you this morning, is your faith real? Is it authentic? Does your creed match your deeds? It's not a theoretical exercise. It's a practical reality. How we live, how we live towards those who are not like us, how we live towards those that we would look down on, how we live towards those in need and in suffering and in in pain, that reveals what we truly believe. It displays itself. James 1.27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Real faith obeys God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the power of your word, how it exposes our hearts. We've been too prone to think that real faith is just what we mentally agree to, the the propositions of doctrine in our minds, and and we've we've been too slow, we've been too apathetic to live out our faith. So we thank you for your grace that speaks to us this morning, your word that clearly declares to us Our faith should be lived out. Here now in this life, we have the risen Son of God, Jesus himself, calling to us and saying, be people who obey and live out the word. Father, may that be true of us. In every point, in every way, to honor you and to glorify you, to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbor as ourselves. Help us, Father, we pray. We thank you and we ask your help now in Jesus name. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together this week. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and to get you connected to the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org forward slash connect to introduce yourself today.